You are listening to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. In each episode, we investigate the social and political messages embedded in popular media. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and today we'll be having an in-depth discussion with award-winning Swedish artist and storyteller Simon Stolenhag. Simon is the creator of narrative art books like Tales from the Loop, Things from the Flood, and The Electric State. His images consist of haunting, dystopian landscapes that are at once quietly disturbing and beautiful in their melancholy. Some listeners will be familiar with Simon's work from popular culture. He did the original cover art for the video game No Man's Sky, and in 2020, Amazon Prime turned his book, Tales from the Loop, into a television series. Tales from the Loop is a genuine cinematic experiment. I really feel like it's a film lover's television show. The show is based on Simon's artwork, which has this stark landscape and these kids are just sort of trudging through the snow and behind them it looks like these gigantic, decrepit robots. And it just seemed like a really good jumping off point for any story. We will discuss what it's like for a small artist when they begin engaging with the Hollywood machine. We'll talk about some of the negative impacts and implications of AI-generated art. And we'll dig into the meaning and messages in dystopian storytelling as a genre. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you so much. Uh, So I thought we'd start off by talking about, you know, what it's like to engage with Hollywood as a small uh, independent artist. So you're you're there, you're you're in Sweden, you're you're doing your paintings, and suddenly Hollywood comes knocking at the door. Do you just get a call from a Hollywood producer saying, "Hey, we like what you're doing, we want to own it"? I mean, how, how does that how does that work? Yeah, kinda. As my art went viral. That's when that started to happen. So it happened maybe like in, in the span of six months. I, I went from having like zero followers and just putting stuff out there online for my friends to uh, like J.J. Abrams contacting me. Like uh, wow. really, really weird. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah. So but it still felt I felt like uh, I won the lottery or like not maybe not the lottery because I, uh, unless you're really optimistic, but I I, I saw trouble <laughs> immediately. Right. Right. So. <laughs> was kind of a random feeling to it and it's just like how things work online it's like the right person at the right moment shares it so i kind of felt like oh what what have i done <laughs> that kind of feeling <laughs> I, right. touched, I clicked the wrong button so suddenly it's <laughs> viral and and it's, so it was kind of scary from the beginning and but it's also classic artist dilemma like you you want to have a big audience but you also they also give, give you a lot of like the bigger they grow the, the more anxiety you get Mm-hmm. I missed being in the little pond with the little fishes because now it's like when you're in the big pond, when you're discussing legal stuff with these huge corporations, it feels like you're swimming in the ocean and it's, the ocean is nice, but the, uh, the, the fishes around you, you're, you're this tiny. And the fishes around you are these big, great white sharks with USC teeth everywhere. Right. And it kind of makes you nervous. Even though they, cannot, they say that you're friends, you know they have... There's a higher caliber of, of everything. And, and for somebody like me, it's very kind of anxious about everything. It's, it's not always a good place to be. Yeah. It's hard to kind of not start thinking what people will like. Because I started thinking what I like. But then when you see that other people likes it, it's really right, hard right. To, uh, right, to, to keep right. on to hold Never on. Never read the comments. This is the lesson. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and also, now I have to think about what sells because now i live off of selling books and and which is basically selling ideas for films and and i i it's really hard not to to let that mindset right 
going to ruin you where, where you start thinking about, okay, so it's been COVID. I can't do something that's too dark. People want, like, that would <laughs> ruin everything. Right, uh, right. Th- like, yeah, so, so it's really hard because it's, it's hard to just follow your, your heart. Like, you know, there's a chance that this might fail or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, I'm familiar with. You know, I have a pretty big uh, YouTube following at this point. You know, I'm closing in on a million subscribers mm. and every time i make a video i say well this is going to be the one that uh everyone just decides that's it i can't follow this oh, guy yeah. anymore you know <laughs> that's never happened but i do have that sort of uh that worry every time i put something out there i think you know i need to balance what i want to say which is often quite political and 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 challenging mm. with uh communicating uh, in an effective clear way mm. uh, at least for me and so it's always this balance. And I'm like, you know, I, I want to say this thing and it's going to upset, you know, like Marvel fans or something mm. or Star Wars fans. And I want to make this critique. I think it's really important, but I also don't want, you know, people to not be able to hear me. And so I need to figure out a way to say it <laughs> in a way that people can hear, you know? Mm. Um, and that is, that is always really tricky. And I, like you're saying, I mean, every time I do it, I think, you know, this might be it. Mm. And then I think, well, it's important enough to me that if, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. You know, if people don't like it, that's okay. Yeah, uh, and I, that's what I try to right, like. Right now, I can I can live off of my work, so I spend all my time doing this that I love. So it's that is also kind of a double edged sword because you want that to continue. So right, right. Like it doesn't matter if people don't like it, but it actually do matter. But but still, if I, I'm gonna second guess the audience, like I, that's not a way. That's the only way I for sure know is not working. Like that, right. that does yeah. never work. So try to not think and just do stuff that interests me and not think too much about it. And, and which is interesting when you're talking about like themes and, and I mean, there's, I have so many like ideas that I get when I get angry, political, like I want to do something right. that has to right. do with it. But it's, it's so, and that's, I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, your work is kind of getting straight to the issue <laughs> than mine, but I, <laughs> I, that's the problem with art, like visual art. People expect it to be kind of broad and, and open to interpretation. And and, uh, and, uh, and I also think like if I would do stuff that really clearly states my political beliefs, it would be bad art. But at the same time, I'm really angry when people, when people <laughs> misinterpret it. Right, right. So. Well, it seems like, you know, you, you, have, uh, you have images that are telling a story. I mean, it's a, so you're, you're building a visual narrative and then you're also adding text which, which I, I would imagine helps a little bit in terms of mm. guiding the viewer through this, this narrative as opposed to just, here's an image, I'm not going to say anything about it. It's a little harder to misinterpret. I'm, not to say yeah. people can't do it. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, the, the, the people who read it mostly get it. And with, with writing, I never went to any writing classes or anything. So I just, okay, I'm just going to write this the way I would say it. So, so mm. but I was so happy when people read it and kind of got the message and they didn't complain too much about the quality <laughs> of the writing. So your, your writing, I think it, it has a, it has a poetic quality to it that I, that, that is really, really beautiful. And I think it, it juxtaposed really well with the images because it gives you, you know, it's not a, a complete narrative from start to finish and all the detail because you have the images there. I mean, I think it's like this little snapshot and I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, that's been really been the idea that, just started writing this. To me, it felt like almost like I found like a diary or something that somebody found. So, and and the gaps are the interesting things. Like when you only get these pieces of information, and because a book is such a nice thing, it's like opening 
a folder or something you found down in the basement and it just uh, you just get a keyhole view of another world it's it's just gonna you're just gonna ruin it if you try to describe like everything right so so yeah it's it's a uh, Really nice, and also it's nice that you say it's, it has a poetic quality because it's, if if there's something I really enjoy reading, it's poetry, and and I think that also has that kind of feeling of just a fragment of something, like a fragment yeah. of reality, a, a quick uh, impression of a feeling or an emotion yeah. or an idea. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, because there's there's no point in doing these illustrations and then go on writing a text that explains what's in the picture. That would be the right. most stupid thing in the world. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I do think they complement each other really well. And I think a lot of your images, a lot of your narratives have a personal element to them. I mean, there's just some nostalgia, there's some retro feelings there, but it feels like you're drawing on your own childhood, your own experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's always been my ambition with these projects, but also do it in a kind of Star Wars big style. Because I was really impressed by Ralph McQuarrie and like the 70s concept artists and math painters of of those, they're like 70s sci-fi basically. So I wanted to, dig, to give my very mundane childhood memories that kind of treatment. And I, I'm wondering, you know, when uh, a big media corporation comes and says, we're going to take your work and we're going to turn it into this big blockbuster production, mm. the work it has a personal quality to it. And so like, do you feel you're going to losing control of, of your own story when it's taken in, by Amazon or someone else to, to make into this big production on a different continent in, in Hollywood somewhere? Is that nerve-wracking? Like, do you do you have to give up total control over your story? Yeah, I mean, if you have control, you're not getting paid, uh, and if you're getting paid, you're not you don't have control anymore. So it's it's you have to lose that expectation very early on. I mean, and also it's it's nice that somebody else is doing it because then I don't have to worry about the, everything. So uh, Nathaniel Halpern, who wrote Tales from the Loop, he, it was very much his own version, what he got from reading and my book and looking at my art and he did his version of it and i'm glad i didn't have his job because i mean he he i think he, he had a nice dark hair first time i met him and it was like half gray <laughs> after <laughs> production so so i mean there's so much stuff that you have to deal with on a production like that that i don't have to so i'm i'm, I'm i gladly gave away control but that means that you it's it's you don't know what the end result is going to be uh, and and you can you can only hope that the, that they do something good. That's all you can. Like, I mean, it doesn't right. have to doesn't even have to have the same kind of feeling or quality. As long as it's something good and it's based on my work, I'm happy. Uh, and 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 then there is of course like if if some meaning is kind of perverted, that's when right. it can get really scary. Like this is not at all what I meant. This because that, that's that's difficult because it kind of reflects poorly on me i don't want anybody if there's something that i feel like this right. is not something i i can i mean support in any way uh that's 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 where i would actually try to do something about it but most of the time it's just somebody, somebody's doing their own completely different piece of art it's better to go in and seeing it more like a remix thing yeah i read that uh that the russo brothers have licensed uh, one of your art books, The Electric State, to make yes. into a, uh, a a movie for Netflix. Yeah. So, do you just license it and then you uh, shake hands? Or, yeah, I know? mean, we actually physically shook hands because this was so long ago. It was before COVID. I didn't meet the Russos actually, but I met the producers. And back then, the Muschietti's, like Andy and Barbara Muschietti, who directed it and it right. too, they were they were going to direct it. 
but then you know things happened and COVID happened and a lot of things happened and and yeah and the Russos decided like they wanted to direct it and make it their next. Uh, they're really making something big out of it. It's gonna be. I think it's gonna be more different from their source material than is from the loop. Are you working on another another series? Another another book is going to be coming. Yeah, I mean, most of my days I spend working on my next book. So I I, I have no idea when that's going to be completed. I because I, I recently just split it up in two books. So I was working on two parallel storylines in the same universe, but then I realized like they, these are not compatible. So I just split them up. <laughs> From having almost a completed book, I now have two half completed books. So uh, we we'll see. But it feels much better because now it feels like like the plan now is to do finish one part of it, like one of those stories to one book and then after that do the next one but it takes so much time uh, <laughs> well yeah how, how long does it take i mean because each of these images is a is a essentially a landscape painting they are rendered beautifully um, and i would imagine they take an enormous amount of time to complete so what is that process like luckily i i base them a lot of on photos that i that i take so i have to go around sweden and just take photos and that's what takes the most time because actually rendering it is not, it takes like four days and I have a process that I rarely screw up. Sometimes I screw up, <laughs> especially with characters. And, but the characters are quite small in a landscape painting, so you can, you can quite easily redo them. But in terms of the whole composition, I, I rarely change stuff. It's like four days or five days, sometimes a little bit more if there's a lot of complex elements. But it always takes at least two days, which, which always makes the first day <laughs> really boring because you're just blocking out stuff. And that's for one, one illustration. And it's, I, I need at least like 60 for it to be a complete book. I mean, they, they really look like, I mean, I, I know that you work digitally, but they really look like, like oil paintings. Yeah, I, I started traditionally when I was a kid painting with watercolors and gouache painting and i mean learn, i never t took any classes i never learned it the right way <laughs> but i i kind of picked up those skills later on like early 2000s i watched a lot of like tutorials and and when i kind of transitioned to digital i had to learn the fundamentals and i learned them online basically but I still try to maintain that feeling of uh, physical medium. So I construct the illustration as a oil painting. So it's all brush strokes and it's all my brush strokes and, and there's no filters. I use the filters and all the kind of photo bashing stuff. That, that's something I do for the sketches. So I go out, take photos. I, I edit the photos. I paint on top of the photos. So I get a nice composition and nice colors and everything. And then I take that and try to make a... Try to see that as something you would put put on the wall when you start working on your oil painting and with that as a reference. And I do hundreds of these sketches, and then I choose one and, and I start working on that finished illustration. And that's what takes four four days uh, doing the sketches are pretty pretty quick. So so it's it's really hard to say how long it takes. Uh, it's I just know that it's time consuming and it's um, I, you could do it much more financially smart <laughs> than I do. <laughs> Uh, you, you could, but you would yes. lose something, I think. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, speaking of financially smart or not, I mean, a lot of your images have a, a built-in critique of corporate capitalism, of consumerism. I mean, you see the, the, the remnants littered around the landscapes you know, in, in various states of decay, almost like ruins of a hyper-capitalist society uh, that your characters are sort of walking through and exploring. And, and that's one of the things that really spoke to me about about your work. I mean, it, it felt like you know this is not just a, a fun science fiction world. I mean, it is, 
but there's this edge to it that to me uh you know it feels like there's a political it, that it's trying to teach us something it's trying to to tell us something yeah. a warning well maybe i think first of all i just think that like this anti-capitalist attitude is just in my blood <laughs> it's just it comes out whatever i do i mean i've always been very i would say almost a- anarchist i don't read that much but i did read like chomsky and howard sin you know, and stuff like that. Chomsky is, is really the person that got me started on my journey <laughs> as a, in politics. Yeah, I, yeah. I think to me, it's always felt like when I read about like humanism and like early humanists and their their feelings about the world, it, that strikes a chord with me. And I've always felt like capitalism is at odds with some part of, of, of human nature, but still. And this is the dualistic uh, side of it. I I do love pop culture. Right. Right. I mean, it's weird because I realize intellectually that consumerism is bad but i'm addicted to it i i love it my my and all our <laughs> lives are are kind of based around it so right. like the surface level of it and and with electric state i wanted to kind of explore that the idea of like brand ambassadors and stuff like that <laughs> and also yes 90s the nostalgia around the 90s era aesthetic so so i me and a friend, a childhood friend who, who, who also draws, we were just sitting around just drawing this, the most stupid kinds of mascots and, and characters from like made up 90s TV shows, stuff like that. So that was something, we were just having fun and just trying to make each other laugh. And, th- and that's how Electric State started, actually. I, I just thought of like, it would be cool to add this into a kind of dystopian world. It's, it's one of my favorite parts uh, of, of, the, of the whole book is the, the, you have this sort of desert landscape and then you have this... Uh, this old mascot kind of half mm. broken down yeah. off in the distance, you know, it's, and it's, it's goofy looking, you yeah. know, silly, I suppose a playful quality to it, but then, you know, it's positioned at least in, in this uh, desolate place. And so it, I, I like that contrast, those two things. Yeah. I mean, really. To me, it was just like something I could do. Like I knew I could render these landscapes with this kind of mood to them. Uh, but I also wanted to draw this wacky, stupid looking character so i just yeah i should i should right. probably combine them and and also the idea with the neurocaster the helmets that they kind of vr technology was also the same it also came from trying to make my friend laugh by by designing the, the most stupid <laughs> like peripheral device for a mega drive or like mid-90s right, technology right. like so we started drawing these kind of penis-shaped things that, that they wore on their head and, and so that became the the neurocaster uh which I think if there's something that people miss sometimes, it's the kind of humor in it. Right. It's like, of course, you would get extreme neck pains from wearing that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, but it's, it's something about it that kind of works. And it was also something I kind of realized, why, why hasn't anybody done VR zombies? Because it's also like a zombie <laughs> apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but when I got to the point where it was time to start writing, it became quite serious, and I think I always knew it was going to be a serious story. Right. But it's 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 it started off as a basically a joke between me and a friend, like drawing the most stupid things we could <laughs> come up with. Well, I mean, I, I, particularly that that narrative book, I like that juxtaposition of you know, it's it's a dystopian landscape. Mm-hmm. It does feel serious. It does feel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a gravitas to it, uh, but there are these elements that feel kind of fun. There's a little whimsy there as well. So it, mm. you know, I mean, that that juxtaposition for me is is what's so special about it because there's a lot of of, of science fiction, especially post-apocalyptic science fiction, that is just depressing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's impactful and it has a point. But mm. as a young man, I loved you know 
cyberpunk and and all of this sort of post-apocalyptic mm. world building in in science fiction. But as I've gotten older, I found it harder and harder to engage with that. Uh, not because I think it's incorrect or or missed a point, but because it's just sort of I'm already feeling a little bit depressed because of the mm. world that we live in. Yeah. And so and this is a question I wanted to kind of ask you about was a, a navigating a dystopian narratives because there is there there's sort of a danger that it can feel hopeless. Mm. But I, I I do think there used to be a sense in cyberpunk and and post-apocalyptic uh, fiction that oh this will wake people up. Mm. You know, uh, that that they just need to see how bad it could get. Uh, but I, I I used to think that, and now I kind of think, well, maybe it just makes people feel worse because now there's nowhere to go, and we're all doomed. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's a like a lot of Generation X culture is that cynicism about consumerist society, right? And and modern society, and uh, if you take like everything that was made in the nineties, like uh, Train Spotting and Fight Club, and um, and uh, like everything was kind of critiquing like Office Space or whatever. And, and they were they weren't writing dystopian science fiction, but it's the same. It's and it has this kind of cold cynicism to it. There's this kind of edgy cool coolness about it. And I think David Foster Wallace actually critiqued that and, and felt like you have to provide some humanity, like some hope. You have to be serious. If you take Fight Club, for instance, that has that it's just coolness and bleakness. Right. But there's no there's no real humanity in it. Because it's it's a protection to be cold and to be cynical, and and if you don't have that, if you want to open your heart to it, it can be very. The world is very painful. I think that's where the kind of humanism comes in. Like because for me, it always point has always been to put something out there if it's a painting or if it's writing, like to put something out there and say this is a little snippet of what I think the world feels like. And if somebody says, "Oh, that's how I feel as well," that's when. Yeah. That that's that's kind of the whole point of it to kind of connect with people and say, to doing art is is hoping is throwing out a, a fishing line and hoping that somebody will say, hey, I I, I felt the same thing. Yeah, uh, a lot of this like being being cynical and just focusing on the that like look look how bad things are. That's just kind of it's almost like an aesthetic. I was gonna I was gonna use the word aesthetic. Yeah. So, well, so, somehow this is going to uh, dovetail into a conversation about AI-generated art. Mm. There seems to be a drive to replace artists completely with uh, robots. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I <yeah>. mean, <laughs> it sounds like science fiction, but you know there are AI art generators online mm. that are getting quite popular. Yes, and you know there's a whole bunch of them at this point: uh, Dolly Two, mm. um, Stable Diffusion. Uh, Mid Journey. There's one called Art Breeder that combines ah. two different kinds of art, and you know these are capable of generating millions of images a day. Uh, some of them, uh, and and they're getting quite quite eerie. I mean, the the first ones were were just kind of fun because it was uh, it was very it was almost comedic. You know the way that it that it tried to make an image mm-hmm. out of things you put in. You know it was this. It looked it looked like a computer tried to make sense of something and couldn't figure it out almost you know but the as the technology advances uh, we get to a place where corporations large entities you know large organizations can use this software instead of paying an artist to make something for them yeah I tweeted about this what what I said there was I mean personally I don't consider images made by this software to be i don't consider it to be ai art i consider it to be the artist is 
the person who put in that keywords or whatever even though it's I, I, it's not very good art it's actually but i don't think you should gatekeep but right, personally right. i just think it's it's terrible because it's it's just surface level but right. just the surface level of it's just art. the aesthetics it's a reduction yeah. of the aesthetics yeah and there's no i mean art is made by humans and it's uh, fueled by experience, life experiences and memories and pain and all those kind of things that humans are very good at having a software doesn't have that. And un until a software is so complex that it actually lives whole lives and, and has real human experiences or personal experiences that it can, that it can communicate, uh, until then, uh, it's, it's, it's just software and it's, it's like a computer engineering, which is amazing in its own right, but it's not art. Uh, but that's like that's my, how I define it, how I see it. I don't. I think it's impressive, but I think it's impressive in terms of computer engineering. It has the ability to mimic the feel, the 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 look, the aesthetics of a piece of art, but it does feel. I mean, to me, that it, it is lacking something. It's it's still the sort of surface veneer of that thing. It's a it's an echo that reminds you of a piece of art that you actually saw. Yeah. But for corporations and 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 big uh, big you know advertising corporations or or big big media companies, that's kind of what they want anyway, right? I mean, that's sort of that's what. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the depressing part of this is that most like game companies or or advertising agencies who hire illustrators, they they are asking for derivative work anyway. Right. So make, make this look like that other thing. Yeah, here, that's yeah. the that's that's what I was always told. Like this is what we want to make a good game that looks like Angry Birds or whatever, because Angry Birds makes money. So it it is a real threat for a whole line of work uh, for for people. So that right. threat is real. It's it's really like real human pain there, where it's like somebody somebody who has invested years of their life learning something, and suddenly they it's much harder for them to to make a living off of that. I mean, that's, that's really human pain. But it's also, if you think a bit about it in like a longer perspective, it's, it's, it's like photography or something. It's, it's going to change, change things, but it's not going to... It's still far from replacing humans. It's just that humans are going to do... Other people are going to do other stuff. Uh, like if, if we're talking about real AI art, real artificial intelligence, I mean, we're... It's a thousand years into the future. I don't know. Nobody thinks that right. we're going to have real uh, sentient entities that are artificial. I mean, there's, we're nowhere near that. Yeah, and, and we're, we're, yeah. so, so we might just, just as well be talking about colonizing the Andromeda galaxy. Right. So, so, so that will not happen. So people are still going to be making art, uh, but it's, it's more being able to sell your skills I mean, that's the that's the the part where it's uh, the threat is, and and that's depressing. But it's also like hopefully it forces those media companies or co uh, content creators that you normally would hire illustrators. Maybe they it forces them to to think differently. Like I want something that really looks human, because this AI stuff just feels cheap. Everybody uses it, so then you're looking for more human qualities to it. So maybe it's it would have good side effects. As well, I think I think that's a very optimistic way to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw a an article on uh, Waxy.org. They were trying to figure out what the images that are being used to create these mm. AI constructs, where they got the images from. They they went and they they found you know a portion of the database mm. 
from Stable Diffusion. Mm. And they went through and they were able to find the artworks, you know, not all mm. of them, but but millions of them and where they're coming from. And, uh, and it's funny because I was reading it and the image of their database that they made, which you can search, mm. is your art. Yeah, in, yeah, I in see the that. Thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And somebody said like, "Your image is on top," and I was like, "Yeah, but if you look up to the image, you also see that they typed in my name." Yeah, yeah. Keyword. They did a search, and then all your yeah. So obviously, my artwork is there because it's online, and my name, like the the algorithm, can find my name and what they think that my art looks like based on what people. Other people, if somebody made something on ArtStation and say it's inspired by me, it would also, I guess it would also take that into account as well. Right, so, because right. that's what I feel when I see those things that they, when they've used my name, this looks like somebody, as, as it has been trained on somebody that tries to mimic my style. Right. Yeah, I don't know. The, 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 the ugly thing about it, I think, is that we artists have been used to train this software that is a commercial thing that some, somebody's selling. So, right. so we created the, the foundation for what like they call we created the content that they're using right. so yeah. that's kind of shitty but uh it's not surprising that's what the internet has been for the last 20 years like corporate people taking over what people did for free <laughs> i think that 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 part of it the part of that it's being commodified and sold as this you know this thing that that is is learned from a bunch of you know countless hours of of artists working you can't even measure the amount of time and effort that's gone into creating all this stuff and then it's fed into this machine, you know, without anyone's permission, which, you know, I believe that art builds on other art. So the building on it, other people's art is not really the problem for me. It's, it's the, that it can spit something out and then that thing can be sold and commodified. Mm. None of it's authentic. And the authentic thing is just used as a reference point to create this other thing, which you're going to then just use. It feels very cynical in that way. Yeah, in the same way that it's being turned into NFTs and all this other scam yeah, yeah. stuff. And I also think it's popular with people who are not very interested in art. I think it's popular with people interested in technology. There are some artists that explore it, but as a part of their toolbox, basically. But it's I think it's very limited, if you see, especially when you see those kind of comic graphic novels that I've tried to make. It's just t total chaos because <laughs> right. you can't right. have any consistency. You can't have any like you have to do so much hands-on work. Uh, that you could have basically done it yourself. Right. It's sad, it's sad that a lot of people seem to enjoy looking at it. Like, but it goes back to that thing with second guessing your audience. Like, there's always going to be a huge set part of your audience that you don't agree with. They like your stuff for the wrong reasons, especially when you do visual art. Mm. It's harder for people to because you're you're doing argumentative art or whatever. Uh, I, I am now. Yeah, I've yeah, transitioned like the, into that. Yeah, yeah but the, like the, your essays are commentary, yeah. and it's hard for people to take away to 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 misinterpret them. I mean, they can get angry at them, and they don't agree with them. But it's but with yeah. my art, people can. Some people yes, totally misinterpret them. I have had this. Um, some of my followers, they they are like far right, and, and also like a lot of people on the NFT, like the Elon Musk techno evangelist, they like my art and i i'm like do you think i is this this is a utopia to you or something and it's uh it's it's so weird so do you write back and say no this is what happens if you take over yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but they're like yeah i can't wait i mean they, see, they really yeah see. yeah mm. you know there's that trend that especially you know with the post-apocalyptic films and video games you know if you think about the human consequences of this sort of 
like society's collapsed. Like that's bad. Mm-hmm. Like we understand that that's bad, right? And mm. so some people, you know, it's just no, it just looks cool and feels cool. And yeah. I want to have a, a gun and a car and a motorcycle. It's like, well, but society's gone, you see. Mm. So that I, I have a hard time explaining to people why that may be a bad thing if they don't think yeah. it is. I think the road is just 150 pages of a man and his kid, like trying to dig up frozen dirt. Mm. And that's <laughs> and everything is mis- miserable. Yeah, I, I, that's I think that's the truest. Right post-apocalyptic uh, story I've read where it's like, oh, this is miserable. I mean, that's that's not something I've, I myself have been kind of inspired by to kind of make a big spectacle. Mm. That's why I like putting big machines in spaces because it's something about, it just gets the medicine down better. Like, oh, <laughs> right, what's right, this? Right, you right. start looking at it and then you see stuff that you mm. hope you wouldn't have seen. If I, if I, just, showed, if I just showed you a, a boring rainy day at a parking lot, nobody, you would kind of, after two seconds, you would identify it as, oh, it's just a mundane, everyday scene. But if there is something else, there's something big, Death Star in the background. <laughs> that catches your eye like immediately, and you're, you're starting to explore the mystery of this. And then you start, for me, that was always the point of having those things, is to, get, to trick people into looking at my boring, mundane life. Right. So this is the bus stop where I hated waiting for the bus when I went to school. And now you're looking at it, right? Uh, because I put some robot <laughs> in the background. Critically, it's in the background. That's the part that is interesting about it, because you're you're very rarely foregrounding the science fiction element. It's yeah. always sort of there, but it's not the focus. I mean, I think that's that's actually yeah. It's 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 something. I mean, it's just a compositional tool. I think by putting it in the background, you you kind of create a path for the eye to follow. Then I place stuff in front of that path, like people looking and and. Uh, doing the science fiction stuff that easy because nobody can say it's wrong nobody, nobody had seen these things before because I invent them but everything else in front of that is real stuff that takes a lot of time to render and, and get right And so, so I really had to research everything and that took all the, that's what takes time and then just adding a robot in the background, that's simple and I remember somebody saying which was basically a, a compliment like I, I really like the way you draw your robots I try to draw robots and it's so hard to get them right in perspective a boxy uh, Volkswagen I could do, but not a complex robot. And I was like, no, you've got it wrong. The boxy Volkswagen, you can't do. I dare you to do it. That's really difficult because everybody knows how that looks like. It's like doing a portrait. If you say, like, I did a portrait of Tom Cruise, like every individual on this planet would say if it's good or bad. But if I say I've made a fantasy creature, nobody can say if it's right or wrong. Right. So that spectacle for me is, is, is the... A mechanism to trick people into looking at uh, all those real world <laughs> boring stuff. Of, of taking a trip down down memory lane, but but your memory lane. Yeah, I mean that's also something that people ask me, like if if, if I'm nostalgic and want to go back, and I feel like I don't want to go back. I would just uh, uh, I don't want to be twelve again. I'm very happy with being forty, and I'm I think I'm gonna be happy being like seventy if I'm healthy. I, I like getting older and um, getting more and more memories and experiences and. And even the painful ones. Mm. I don't know why. I, it's nostalgia is weird that way because I think the problem, a lot of reactionary stuff and, and all the kind of right, far, far right politics that we've seen rise in the last 20 years, it's, it's also based around nostalgia and the idea of the present as being per- perverted or, or. Right. They, they, they want to go back to a, an idealized 
romanticized and sanitized version of the past that that didn't actually exist. No, exactly. And I think sometimes, and I actually had some some fans like that. That when you get stuff like Trump and Make America Great Again, or or in Sweden we have Sweden Democrats, mm. the Swedish and Scandinavian far right or like neo-Nazis, basically, they, they, which is what Sweden Democrats come from. They share the same kind of ideas. They, they are obsessed with history. Hmm. And Sweden as a superpower, or like in the, I don't even know, like 16th century, like way back. And like battles and, and kings and whatever, like they're, they're obsessed with history. And, and, and this idea of like ethnic, like there's some, some kind of essence within a part of the populations, that they're like the ethnics weeds or whatever they mm. and, and, and i think that's what you get if you think it's better to actually go back in time right, and not just right. yeah, for, for a, a a really large number of people in the world today you know going back in time would be a, a an absolute nightmare i mean it would be it would be hell and it's it takes a yeah. very specific kind of a, a privileged position to think oh i can go back to the you know 1950s and live in a in an all-white neighborhood, and not have to think about you know the racism or the sexism or the you know all the stuff. Yeah. Back then, things were uh, were not a Norman Rockwell painting. They were actually quite horrible for a large number of people. You know. Yeah, that's I've never understood that. I mean, it is part of this uh, this, this romantic nostalgia that that reactionaries have is that they want to go back to a time when really they didn't know better. You know, I, I grew up in a conservative suburb of the United States, of Florida and Maryland, and I didn't know anything. And so uh, the world seemed like a great place. With, mm. uh, and then, you know, as I grew older, I learned that actually, no, <laughs> things were really messed up, and and, mm. and there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of oppressive systems in place, and and I just didn't know about them at that time. They existed, and they were uh, negatively impacting uh, huge numbers of people. But I was in a place where I was almost isolated from that. And so, um, I mean, we had economic problems, but I was sort of a working class family. So I knew that, but I, uh, I didn't know about sexism. I, you know, I, I didn't know about racism. I didn't really know about those things outside of what I saw on TV. And so, you know, the idea of going back to a time when I didn't know about the world yeah. and didn't understand it is horrifying. That's like, a, that's, that's like a horror film, you know? Uh, but for reactionaries, they, you know, they want to go back to a time when they didn't know any better. Uh, and I also find that very telling. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was something that I also felt uh, really resonated with me that also came from Chomsky. I don't remember when he said it, where it's like you have the responsibility to criticize the system that you live in. Like why he, it's always like people complain about him only attacking American politics. Right. Because, and he's like, well, I, I'm an American. I live in America. And so. Yeah, and he says, he says it's like a more, more basic moral, like you have responsibility for the actions, like for your own actions, not right. somebody else's actions. And, and he cannot extrapolate that to, to the whole state in right. terms of the foreign policies of the United States. But I think that also, like, you can, you can say the same thing about gender. I've been raised a man, like as a, a man, and, and there are patterns in that that are toxic. Mm. And... Uh, it's my obligation. It's my it's my duty to 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 take responsibility of for that. Yeah. So so, so I think it's 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 a basic kind of moral principle. Mm. Uh, like and also uh, first you have to be willing to. I mean for me it was just obvious because I think uh, toxic masculinity, for instance, has affects me has has done so all my life. Yeah. Negatively, has been it's 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 
it's one of the worst things about my life comes from the fact that I've right. stuff that other men do because we are men. Mm. So for me, it was just a no brainer when I learned about sexism and, and, and kind of gender identities and, and gender roles and whatever. It's just, yeah, that's, that's, and I know I've been part of, I've been both a victim and a perpetrator of those things as a, and we all are. Right. It's, it, of course it would be easier to dismiss it, but it's, I, I don't see how, I mean, you have to really be in denial <laughs> to be able to pull that off. <laughs> it's like a moral, moral, uh, basic moral principle to kind of take responsibility for and not repeat it and do something about it. If I, and I don't have kids, but if I have kids around me in my family, like my siblings, kids, I feel very strongly like I don't want them to go through this. And, you know, you, uh, by, by embracing a feminist uh, worldview, you, you get so much from that because, you know, half the population, when you start respecting the other half of the population uh, and seeing them as full and complete human beings that you can learn mm. from, that you can have uh, real friendships and relationships with that are uh, mutually beneficial and based in respect and, and in a measure of equality, I mean, that is enriching in mm. every aspect of your life. I and mean, it makes your life as a man, my life as a man better, mm. uh, in, immeasurably better. And so I, I think that's, that's part, of, part of the other side of the coin is that it's not just about that you stop or you try not to do these things that are, that are damaging and you try to change society so that it doesn't damage men because it currently, you know, the, the byproduct of patriarchy is that men are constrained and boxed in and have all of these pressures put on them to, to shut off parts of themselves and right. So if you can, when you break free of that, you can open up, you can be a, a whole person mm. uh, and you can have real meaningful relationships that are based in mutual respect. And that, I mean, it's just, it's more valuable than anything I can think of, you know? I think it's, I think most people would agree on that, but it, I mean, we, our political identities are so strong that as soon as somebody identifies an idea as a, as a feminist idea or whatever, they shut down their critical thinking. And Right, right. And, no, I've, I've, I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, sad. But yeah, and that, but that's actually like the book I'm working on. I'm, that's really something that I'm narratively trying to focus on I don't want to do it for this, like make it a sensationalist or anything. Right. But but I still want to to highlight the tension that exists in intimacy between men visually. Mm. Do you have a do you have a title? Do you have a a timeline? I, do you have? I, I I do. I no. I don't really have a title yet. I, I I this project started as I call it Europa Meccano. That title is going to be for that because it's split up in two projects and it's going to be for the other project. So the. Uh, I don't really have a good title yet, but but um, I'm I'm ho I mean I'm halfway through, so I hope I'm I, I will have something like next summer or something like that. Yeah, and I, also there's there's this uh, huge part of it that I haven't started on that's going to take place in the present uh, or like 2024, 2020, like in the very near future, and it's the first time I'm going to try to mm. capture uh, contemporary times. <laughs> uh, so, so I have I have to do that, um, but uh, yeah, I think I think uh, next summer or something is uh, realistic. Well, it's exciting. Uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. We're gonna have to leave the conversation there, but if you'd like to find out more about Simon's work, you can go to his website at simonstallenhog.com. 
Please remember that all of our pop culture detective projects are 100% funded by listeners and viewers like you. So if you enjoy in-depth conversations about media, like the one you just heard, please consider going over to Patreon to support our work. Just go to patreon.com popdetective. As always, you can keep up to date with all of our projects on Twitter, at popdetective, and find our long-form video essays on the Pop Culture Detective YouTube channel. We'll be back again soon with another audio file investigation, digging into lawyers and the law in the MCU. Until then, please remember to follow and subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts from. Thanks again for listening.